0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z Man, Cliff Zodden. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great show today. We've got Dr. Karen Dana Miller from The Ohio State University. We're going to talk about understanding fungi, bacteria, and chemicals in the indoor environment. Uh, If you get a chance, check out our Facebook page at IAQ Radio or the YouTube page, leave a comment, like it, or subscribe. You can also sign up for the weekly show announcement on our home site, iaqradio.com, where we've got all the shows archived and Cliff's blogs, plenty of great information on there. Before
0: we get started, let's thank our platinum sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles
1: Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association.
2: And now you can win a cool
0: prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C. Zlotnick at CS.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question.
2: Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to IQ Radio. I'm happy to report that Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, was first to identify September 21st, 1970, as the day that Monday Night Football debuted on ABC. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, September 28, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Who insisted the addition of the word the would separate Ohio State from other colleges in Ohio? Back to you, Joe. Whoever it was, they were correct.
1: Anyway, this week we've got Dr. Karen Miller. She's an assistant professor at The Ohio State University, Her interdisciplinary research integrates engineering with microbiology and addresses emerging health challenges and environmental concerns using an omics approach. We'll talk about that word a little more as we get into this. Dr. Dana Miller graduated with honors in chemical and biochemical engineering from Brown University, and she earned her Ph.D. at Yale University in chemical and environmental engineering during this time, she also completed an internship at the California Department of Public Health in their Indoor Air Quality Program, pretty widely recognized and, and uh, respected program there. She also completed a Microbiology of the Built Environment postdoctoral fellowship. Welcome to the show, Dr. Danimo, do We have you on.
3: Great. Thanks to be here. Or nice to be here. Thank you.
1: I tell you, what, I, I, you, you, you made me do my work this week. Uh, reviewing those papers was uh, a little challenging, but quite interesting, actually. Really enjoyed it. So what what led to your interest in, um, you know, indoor air quality, indoor environments, uh, this type of research?
3: You know, I was always interested in indoor exposures. So I started out in chemical engineering and was interested in exposures to formaldehyde in the indoor environment. And then when I started my Ph.D., I got interested in indoor microbiology and the exposures there.
1: Okay. And, and your Ph.D. was up at Yale with it? Jordan Petya?
3: Correct, yes.
1: Okay. We had him on the show a, a while back now. Very interesting. Actually, he'll be the keynote at our uh, Healthy Building Summit coming up October 25th. Looking forward to that and, and seeing him in person. So let's talk a little bit about um, your dissertation, actually. I noticed when I was reviewing your CV, it was Integrating Measurements of Environmental Fungal Communities with Human Health Outcomes, which is you know, obviously like the, the big ticket, what we're looking at. How do we determine how environmental fungal communities and health outcomes are, are, are related, I guess. Um, what
3: What do you think is
1: the best way to actually measure environmental fungal communities when you're trying to figure out the potential health outcomes?
3: So like you said, I think this is the the big question that's still out there. I've always been interested in this interdisciplinary field, Um basically bringing my engineering background to uh, public health and looking at the indoor environment. So I think uh, looking at these exposures and and trying to figure out what to measure is a really important problem. It has a lot of health implications for uh, all of us and especially some vulnerable populations uh, like kids with asthma. So I think the the question of what to measure is the, you know, the million dollar question, so to speak. And I think we're still trying to figure out uh, what is the measurement that we can make that's the most associated with human health outcomes.
1: And, you know, we, we hear often that uh, research using spore trap sampling and, and that using that to try and predict the, the potential for health effects just does not work. Um, you mentioned the paper to me when we were talking earlier today. I'm, I'm sure you'll bring that up in the, in the answer. Why do you think that doesn't work? Or maybe you can explain to listeners, you know, what, what the findings have been when trying to correlate spore trap air samples using a slit impactor with health effects.
3: So the biggest thing that we want to consider when we're trying to determine what to measure is that we want the measurement with the best associations with health outcomes so that we can figure out what we need to measure to improve the health of the indoor environment. Uh, for spore traps, there's no consistent associations with these human health outcomes in the literature. Um, and in fact, we're looking for the measurement that has the strongest association with these health outcomes. So there was a really great review written about this by uh, Mark Mandel at L in uh, Environmental Health Perspectives in 2011. Uh, so I definitely point uh, any interested listeners there uh, as a really great resource. But that goes through looking at these different measurements. And in fact, the best measurements uh, that they found that were the most associated with health, health Health outcomes were the subjective measurements. So, so things like visual inspection for mold growth or water damage, um, as well as moldy odor, have uh, the highest and the most consistent associations with health outcomes. Um, so in fact, that's probably what we need to be looking for um, if we're concerned about health in the indoor environment.
1: So again, a good visual inspection, olfactory is is the key. Um, but then, you know, we, we also like to add we get requests all the time as, as an indoor environmental professional, I get, you know, can you sample my air? I need mold samples. I need this. I need that. You you do a lot of um, DNA based analysis. How is that coming along with respect to the availability and economics for those of us out in the field, trying to help people with these issues?
3: So I think at this point, we're, we're still at a point where we're still trying to figure out the best thing to measure. And uh, DNA sequencing is getting cheaper and cheaper and less expensive uh, as we speak, and it's slowly becoming more accessible. So you have a, a couple different challenges uh, in terms of accessing that in the field. The first is figuring out what to measure. Um, the second is actually doing the measurement and getting that done. And the third is actually the analysis component, which at this point is still fairly challenging. Um, and maybe not accessible to uh, typical practitioners, but we are getting there. Um, so some of the reasons that uh, the that uh, quantitative measurements in the environment have not been associated as much with health outcomes, um, maybe things like it's uh, there may be measurement errors in the exposure assessment, so we might be measuring non-causal factors. So with these analyses, we can now look at everything that's present in the environment, at least everything that's in our database, and try to find the best association. So try to find what are actually the causal factors in looking at these health outcomes. Um, The second reason is that effects may change over time. Um, Both the amount um, or effect Both the amount that's there may change over time and the effect based on age of the person that you're concerned about with the health outcome. Um, And the third reason that it may be difficult to find associations with measurements and health outcomes is that you may have interaction effects from multiple exposures. So the benefit of these uh, DNA-based techniques is that we now get a much more comprehensive picture of what is actually in the indoor environment. Um, And we can start looking at things like those interactions, um, although statistically it's very complicated.
1: Well, and then we could even make it more complex if we add what, what um, we had in the title of the show, which is uh, chemicals um, and how moisture and microbial populations affect the chemicals that are in indoor environments. Uh, any comment on that?
3: Yeah, I think there are absolutely interactions there. Uh, So some of the things that we've been working on the lab, we see that there may be uh, effects that chemicals have on microbes and effects that uh, microbes have on chemicals in the indoor environment. Um, So not only do you have that, but you're also going to have potential exposure effects as well.
1: Interesting. Very, very tough to tease it all out. Let's go to some of the papers here. The first one, John, is... Um, influence of housing characteristics on bacterial and fungal communities in homes of asthmatic children. This was in indoor air. Um, I don't have the date in front of me here, but I'm sure you, you probably know. First, I want to ask you, in the title, you talked about housing characteristics. What do you mean by housing characteristics when you're in this particular paper?
3: So we define housing characteristics characteristics fairly broadly for this paper. We were looking specifically for characteristics that had been identified in the past as potentially being associated with asthma outcomes. Uh, So what we decided on were number of uh, people or children in the home, so number of occupants, the level of urbanization. So in this study, we were able to separate it out by homes in urban and suburban areas, Um, single and multifamily housing units, so sort of the type of home, uh, whether there was report, reported mold or reported water leaks in the home, um, the air conditioning use, as well as the presence of pets. Um, so we defined it fairly broadly here.
1: I see. Okay. And now we've got that, done. we've got the, the background. What's the, what are the key takeaways from this particular paper?
3: Uh, so the biggest takeaway from this paper was that we found that the building can the building conditions within a home affected the microbial communities that people were exposed to. So we saw uh, both uh, fungal and bacterial communities were non-random, meaning that there were factors in the homes that influenced these communities. Um, we also found that pretty much all of these housing factors that we looked at affect the microbial communities in some ways. So we saw associations with diversity or richness, and we also saw uh, overall effects uh, on the communities and different taxa that were present.
1: Now we're going to talk more about diversity and richness as as, it's kind of a theme throughout here. I think, um, at least in my review of things, when when you talk about diversity um, first, I guess, how many, uh, you did DNA, next generation DNA sequencing on these, how many, uh, how many organisms are in the database that, that we're dealing with? I mean, just to give people an idea, just a ballpark idea.
3: There are thousands of organisms in the database, and we typically identify hundreds of thousands of organisms uh, when we do these types of studies. So we get a really comprehensive picture of what's present in these homes.
1: I see. and, and just to give us a kind of an idea what percentage of those um, organisms are bacteria versus fungi and and just a ballpark idea so we know uh, in the database
3: so uh, well we you we use two different databases one for bacteria one for fungi in terms of total concentration they're actually usually about equivalent
0: oh
1: okay interesting all right well let's you also sent a paper or an article that was called Indoor Microbial Communities Influence on Asthma Severity in Atopic and Non-Atopic Children. Um, let's go over the results here. I want to—I don't know if I can pull this up that way or not. John, can you go into the – yeah, there you go. Just pick it up a little bit, the background here. I, when I was looking through this, I saw among all children increased asthma severity was significantly associated with an increased concentration of summed allergenic fungal species, high total fungal concentrations and high bacterial richness, uh, when using logistic regression, in addition to microbial community composition by using the distance comparison test, which is probably a little above and beyond where we're going. Just, I know we you're using uh, widely recognized, um, uh, methods for for coming up with these results so what is the summed allergenic fungal species what does that mean
3: Sure. So uh, there are a couple of questions there. So the the main uh, goal of this study was to look at how uh, microbial exposures in the indoor environment affected kids who already had asthma. So we wanted to look at their asthma severity in this study. Um, and in this study, we separated out the children into two groups. So there were kids who were atopic, or those who were prone to developing allergy, and then there were kids who are non-atopic, so those who are not prone to develop. Uh, to developing allergy. Um, and then we uh, sampled the dust and looked at all of the uh, fungal and bacterial exposures uh, that these children were exposed to and, and measured their asthma severity over the course of the following month. Um, and when we, we looked at a couple different factors uh, in the microbial communities that we thought might be associated with this asthma severity. And these included things like total fungal and bacterial concentration, uh, overall diversity, uh, a sum of allergenic fungal species, uh, as well as the overall fungal and bacterial communities. And so for the sum of overall, uh, the sum of allergenic fungal species, we used a study that was done from 2008. Uh, the last name on it is Simon Nob. It's in the International Archives of Allergy and Immunology. Um, And from that study, they have a fairly comprehensive list of known fungal allergens. Uh, So we took that list of allergens and the fungal species associated with those allergens and summed it all together uh, to get our measure of allergenic fungal species. And we found some pretty interesting things when we did this study. So we were able to comprehensively look at the microbial communities that these kids were exposed to um, and compare that to the asthma severity over the following month. And what we found is that the the kid the response of the children depended on their asthma uh, subtype. So if you go and ask uh, a physician how many subtypes of asthma there are, often you get a different answer. Uh, so I'll I'll say that you can divide that a lot of different ways, but we broadly uh, distributed them into allergic and non-allergic. Uh, children, And what we found is that the allergic children tended to respond more to the types of fungi that they were exposed to. So things like summed allergenic fungal species, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, but it didn't actually matter how much they were exposed to. It was more sort of the question of who's there, uh, which species are actually present. And oh. then for the, for the non-allergic children, we found that it was a total fungal concentration. So they responded more to how much they were exposed to. Um, and this makes sense because uh, based on their asthma status, they're going to respond differently to these environmental stimuli. The allergic children have more of an allergic type response, where the non-allergic children have more of an irritant uh, type response.
1: Interesting. So they do have a response, but it's more of an irritant versus uh, an a- our, our asthma or increased asthma. Or, uh, okay. Now, with that same paper, um, I highlighted the words significantly associated. Increased asthma severity was significantly associated with an increased concentration of the sub-allergenic species, high total fungal concentration, high bacterial richness. When you say I'm used to seeing associated with or cause, but that term significantly associated was new to me. What do you mean by significantly associated?
3: Sure, that's a great question. So we did a statistical analysis, which showed that basically our p-value was less than 0.05. So we can say that our associations we found here were statistically significantly associated.
1: I see. Okay. All right. Next one is, um, well, I guess you kind of already told us what these means in, in layman's terms, right? I mean, you gave us a good, but if you want to maybe kind of give us a, a quick overview one more time of, of that, the results from that study.
3: From the, the study on the screen, fungal and bacterial growth in floor dust at elevated relative humidity levels?
1: Yeah, well, I was actually, I, want, I was going back to the first one, um, the the uh, indoor microbial communities' influence on asthma severity. Any, you know, I guess what I'm always trying to figure out is for the people that are trying to either, you know, clean their own home or, or figure out what's wrong with their own home or those of us that are practitioners out there, what, What's the key takeaway for us from that particular paper?
3: I think there's two uh, main key takeaways. One is that we did see associations with asthma severity based on the microbes that these children were exposed to. So their microbial exposure actually mattered in terms of determining their asthma severity. Um, And then the second takeaway is really that the – Basically that it's complicated is the large takeaway that their reaction depended on their asthma subtype. So for the kids with allergic asthma, it mattered more what they were exposed to, and for the kids with non-allergic asthma, it mattered more how much uh, they were exposed to. So I think overall, uh, I think that the the picture is still pretty complicated. Um, we're still at a point where we're looking to make recommendations, um, and we're maybe not uh, quite there yet. In terms of asthma severity, I feel like a lot of the standard recommendations are, are still good advice. Things like reducing overall exposure to dust is potentially helpful um, because it might it might help um, both of these kids, especially if you can reduce exposure to allergenic species, um, but also if you can reduce exposure to the total uh, fungal concentration. All
1: right. There was another thing that caught my eye in that paper. The fungal genus volatella, I may be pronouncing that wrong, was associated with increased asthma severity in the atopic children. This goes back to what you were saying about the kids that were that were atopic for allergy. They reacted more to specific allergenic fungi. And this one is kind of new to me. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Absolutely. So we were also surprised to see this association with volutella pop up. Uh, it's typically a turf grass pathogen, uh, so it's not something that we really had on our radar uh, before doing this study. So I wouldn't necessarily at this point recommend that everybody go out and look for volutella in the environment um, because we, we're we still not sure if this is a causal association. We probably want to try to repeat this result in other studies. It's still possible that it's associated with something else that's associated with asthma. Um, so at this point, this study is more uh, flagging Volutella for for further research. So I wouldn't go out and look for it quite yet.
1: Okay. All right. Good. That's good to know. You also note here that the yeast genera condoa might be protective and cryptococcus species might also affect asthma severity. That's interesting.
3: Correct. So we're looking at these uh, particular species now because they've shown up in a a couple different studies at this point. So we also did a study looking at asthma development and found potential associations with uh, species in the genus Condoa, as well as diversity among uh, all the species within the genus Cryptococcus. So uh, I'll, I'll talk about Cryptococcus briefly. So this is a genus within the Phylum Basidiomycota. And what that basically means is that it's Uh, generally been understudied because a lot of these are are difficult to culture. So uh, in the past, when people were more reliant on culture-based techniques, it was a a lot more difficult to study. And now that we have new DNA-based methods, it's a lot easier to study uh, species within this genus. Um, And so we found uh, associations with cryptococcus, uh, especially in our asthma development study. And when you look to the literature, you see uh, other associations with cryptococcus. So uh, Uh, one of the species in this genus cryptococcus neoformans is also a known human pathogen and Yeah, and there's been studies that have been done, uh, both uh, epidemiological studies and as well as a rat model um, that found that subclinical infections with cryptococcus neoformans are uh, associated with asthma. Uh, So these subclinical infections with cryptococcus are typically low-level persistent infections uh, that some children might develop. Uh, In the doctor's office, they're often confused for uh, viral infections because they don't respond to antibiotics, uh, but they're actually fungal. And so children who have uh, developed these infections may be more likely to develop asthma. So we thought it was interesting that we find associations within the same genus uh, in our studies as well.
2: You know, with the Cryptococcus, were you finding a lot of pigeons or bats or birds, uh, you know, infestations and nests in these houses? Because typically, that's a common place to find Cryptococcus.
3: Absolutely. So cryptococcus is present in a lot of different environments, and uh, animals are, are one source of it. They're, they're known for being present in pigeons, like you mentioned, uh, especially. Uh, we didn't see anything like that show up in our data specifically, but we also didn't necessarily look for it. Um, it wasn't something that we were, were looking for when we went into this study. Uh, so it's, it's an open question about what the specific sources of uh, cryptococcus species were in these studies.
1: Thanks. Interesting. I, I kind of suspect that we, you know, in the past we've uh, not found cryptococcus as often as you are now, because like you said, the, the culture and other techniques we use just don't pick it up as easily. Is, does that seem like it makes sense to you?
3: Absolutely. I think it's a lot more difficult to detect using culture-based methods or, or other techniques. So the DNA-based methods are really helpful in terms of looking at it.
1: When you do all this research you're doing on indoor environments using the DNA based methods, do you commonly find cryptococcus species in the, uh, in the indoor environment?
3: Yes. So there are about 304 different species of cryptococcus that we know about. um, And we generally find maybe up to about 30 of them uh, commonly in our studies of the indoor environment, but it it is a very common genus. We find uh, uh, many different species present in our samples.
1: Very interesting. Very interesting. All right, let's go to the next one. This is um, Bolotella. We talked about the Bolotella, I believe. Um, And let's let's go to the next paper here before we get to halftime. That's good. Unless you had anything else you wanted to say about that previous paper, the article, I guess it was indoor microbial communities influence on asthma severity. What's the key takeaways on that one, I guess?
3: Oh, on influence on atmosphere. Yeah, so I think the key takeaway is that we did find associations between these uh, microbial exposures and human health outcomes. Uh, these were not homes that were necessarily selected based on things like water damage or uh, mold oh. growth that you could see, um, but we did find general associations with these health outcomes. So I think it's something that we need to uh, keep looking at into the future. We know that there are health outcomes there um, and try to learn more about both what we can do uh, to improve the indoor microbiome and prevent these health outcomes um, and how that will uh, potentially be beneficial for children.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I I didn't ask that in the very beginning. And I think that's an important uh, point to bring up that how are these houses chosen though?
3: Uh, so these houses were chosen actually as part of a broader study that had already been completed, part of the STAR study that was done in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And in that study, they looked at uh, a, a range of homes, so urban versus suburban homes. And so they had these uh, dust samples left over. So we, we selected these dust samples uh, for our analysis based on the atopic status of the child. So we wanted about half atopic, half uh, non-atopic for our analysis.
1: I see. That had nothing to do with the conditions of the home. Correct, yes. All right. Very good, very good. Let's go to uh, what time is 1226. We have time to get into number three here. Um, this one is called fungal and bacterial growth in floor dust at elevated relative humidity levels. And this is the one that actually caught my attention when I, I started checking around, and figure out, I, I know we had met before, but we we hadn't had a chance to, connect and get you on the show and this one i was like all right i i've got to track her down and get her on this show here because i just found this fascinating especially because i i find a lot especially now in my practice um elevated relative humidity is a huge issue that i think is under uh, undercovered in other words um people don't talk enough about the issues with elevated relative humidity and and how common it is, especially in the swing seasons. Uh, I think people know that during the the summer when it's hot and humid, you get elevated relative humidity. But in my experience, the biggest problems with elevated relative humidity come in those swing seasons in the spring and the fall. And this year, it's been all year. So uh, this one I find fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about it. First, Uh, What led to your interest in this floor dust and elevated relative humidity, the topic?
3: Absolutely. So some of the same reasons that you just mentioned. Uh, so we were interested in looking at uh, the effect of elevated relative humidity on microbial growth in floor dust. Uh, when people think of the indoor environment, a normal indoor environment that's not uh, that does not have any known water damage or moisture problems, uh, we typically think that the microbial communities there are pretty dormant, that they're tracked in um, on our shoes from soil outside or deposited from indoor air, especially the fungal communities, maybe um, the bacterial communities. by occupants um, but they don't necessarily think of it as an active uh, community where that experiences growth. So we wanted to ask the question uh, is elevated relative humidity sufficient to support microbial growth in the indoor environment? Uh, We selected a carpet for our study because carpet has uh, fairly high resuspension rates compared to a solid surface flooring. So we wanted to look at the the dust uh, in the carpet and see if elevated relative humidity uh, would support this growth. So we uh, collected carpet from a home in eastern Massachusetts, and we uh, took it back to our lab. We embedded dust from the same home in the carpet, and we subjected it to relative humidity conditions of 50 – equilibrium relative humidity conditions of 50%, 80%, 85%, 90%, 95%, and 100% uh, equilibrium relative humidity. And then we measured the microbial communities in the dust before that incubation as well as the dust in the communities uh, after that incubation. Um, And what we found is that indeed, uh, we did see microbial growth in the dust uh, under sufficient uh, moisture conditions. So we're not talking about a situation where we have condensed water, we're talking about just elevated relative humidity conditions. Uh, So uh, what we saw is we didn't see an increase in numbers at 50% uh, relative humidity, but we saw an increase in fungi starting at about 80% relative humidity, um, and that increased all the way up to about 100% relative humidity, where we saw uh, more than 27 times increase in the fungal concentration in the dust from carpet samples that were incubated uh, at that relative humidity levels compared to the, in the original dust. Uh, For the bacteria in this sample, we did not see an actual increase in numbers at the relative humidity levels except at 100% uh, relative humidity where we did see an increase in total bacterial concentrations. Uh, So the main point of the study was that elevated relative humidity uh, was sufficient to support the microbial growth um, in these carpet samples. You didn't necessarily need condensed water to be present.
2: Don't bacteria need a lot more water than than fungi, and that's kind of why you found what you found?
3: Absolutely. So the fungi are much more resistant to desiccation, um, and so they're uh, more able to use uh, water that's available at lower equilibrium relative humidity conditions than uh, bacteria. So we had only seen the bacteria increase in number at 100% relative humidity. We uh, we did see um, a change in community structure for the bacteria that were incubated at 95% relative humidity, uh, but we didn't necessarily see an increase in number. Uh, We just saw an uh, increase in uh, basically who's there. Uh, We also continued these incubations out for about six weeks. So our initial analysis was done after a one-wing incubation um, at these different relative humidity conditions, but we continued it out for about six weeks. Uh, For the fungi, we ended the experiment after about three weeks because the carpet squares were uh, essentially covered in visible fungal growth, so we said, hey, I think we we, uh, proved our point here. Uh, But 85% we continued out to about six weeks, and we saw a continued growth as well um, over that period of time.
1: Interesting. When we come back, we have to stop and thank our sponsors, but when we come back, I've got a, a... Handful of questions. I'd like to get into a little more detail on that study. We'll be back for the second half of
0: our interview. We've got Dr. Karen Miller from uh, the Ohio State University. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at JohnDon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Okay. We're back for the second half. We've got a couple text questions. I just want listeners to
1: know I will get to those. And in fact, I think you've anticipated some of my questions. First, this is um, your Ohio state indoor environmental quality research team. We wanted to make sure we got those, the the gang up on, uh, up on the video here. So do you want to mention anything about your group here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I couldn't do any of this uh without the, the students who are in my group. So those uh right now our group consists of Ashley Bope, Sarah Haynes, uh Samuel Cochran, David Cormos, Nick Natashi, Iona Campbell, uh, Victor Emma Sodor, and Nicole Redinger. So uh definitely I'm I'm really thankful to work with some really fantastic students and uh participate in the work that they um, you know, in the end, they do a lot of the work and most of the work, so it's it's really great to work with them.
1: It's a good-sized team you've got there. All right, um, let's let's talk a little bit more about the the methodology here, how you did this. First, um, how did you measure equilibrium relative humidity?
3: So the nice thing is for this study, we were working in a laboratory, so it's a lot easier to do in a laboratory than it is in the uh, actual environment. So we used uh, these glass chambers that were sealed with parafilm, and we controlled the relative humidity in these chambers using a salt solution. So we made a salt solution at a specific water activity, which could then control the relative humidity within the chamber. Um, and we, So we measured the water activity of the salt solution, and then we also measured the relative humidity in the chamber uh, using some monitors for uh, temperature and relative humidity to make sure everything stayed where we needed it to be. Um, and then these uh, glass jars sat in a larger incubation that controlled the temperature at a constant level.
1: Okay. And and you chose 50%, 80%, 85%, 90%, 95%, and 100 and as I'm sure many listeners know, EPA recommends 30 to 50 percent, never above 60. You know, ASHRAE and others try and keep you below 60. Um, and I've got a text question. Um, she'd be interested in your thoughts on the impact at 60, 65, and 70 percent relative humidity, which are more common than than what you're saying, showing here—80, 80, 85, 90.
3: Absolutely. So I think that's that's a really great question. Uh, we selected these relative humidity conditions because we weren't sure what we'd find uh, going into this study in terms of the growth at these different levels. Um, so we selected 80% as a set point because that's been shown in other systems to uh, support microbial growth, so on uh, different building materials like wood or drywall or, or things like that. Um, I think, uh, so 80% is uh, particularly high for a home, um, Hopefully you don't see that on a regular basis, at least in homes that don't have uh, problems. So these uh, might be, fairly high results, uh, but you could see levels uh, this high in specific situations, such as in a bathroom uh, during a shower where you might have elevated relative humidity conditions or in certain climates um, if you're working in a home with no uh, air conditioning or, or something like that. Um, but I think there there are more realistic relative humidity conditions that could still potentially uh, show growth and we actually have some samples running now to look at potential long-term growth so we may just need to be more patient at the levels closer to like 65-70% relative humidity uh, to see that growth down the road. Uh, The other thing that we're working on is to make these studies more realistic uh, to building conditions. Uh, So right now uh, my student Sarah Haynes is working on a study to look at uh, fungal growth in these uh, samples at varying relative humidity levels over the course of a day. So in a typical home, you might have relative humidity that increases and decreases. And so we're exposing some of these samples to elevated relative humidity conditions for shorter periods of time. Um, And so we still see uh, fungal growth for the samples that are exposed to elevated relative humidity levels, um, even if it is over a shorter period of time per day.
1: You know, that's interesting because uh, there's been thoughts in the... um, in the practitioner world and in the training world that it takes longer than i think people people have shown in the research world it takes longer for mold to grow on on building products and that you know 24 to 48 hours uh is probably extra cautious i guess you would say but have you seen growth that quickly in in your laboratory
3: so I think we haven't looked at such short timescales as uh, you know 24 to 48 hours. We definitely see the dust uh, uptakes the, the moisture out of the air very quickly. Uh, so it, it, after about a day, you can see that the the relative humidity, the water activity of the dust has equilibrated fairly well with the water activity level. It's not maybe doesn't quite reach it uh, at equilibrium yet, but it definitely uptakes the water very quickly. Um, And I also predominantly study fungi, which grows a lot more slowly than bacteria. Uh, So the bacteria is going to grow a lot more quickly um, than the fungi necessarily.
1: Interesting. All right, um, tell us a little bit about what you did find at 50% equilibrium relative humidity. Was there any change?
3: Uh, in our study, after one week, we did not see any change in total numbers of increase in uh, spores in this study uh, at
1: 50%. And I, I think I noticed in the uh, – I was looking at some of the um, some of the other papers you used, and, and I think you chose 50%, correct me if I'm wrong, because there's a good bit of uh, data out there on dust mites and, and dust mite activity at 50%. Is that somewhat accurate?
3: We were looking at that, but we were also considering the EPA-recommended levels, and we knew that the EPA recommended uh, 50% as the ideal upper limit for relative humidity. So we wanted something that was close to our elevated conditions, um, but still within the acceptable range, um, and that's why we chose 50% predominantly.
1: Okay. All right. So let's let's move up a little bit. Um, at 80%, what did you start to see? You know, what, what were the changes that uh, I guess we could kind of summarize? You, you did already a little bit, but um, as far as I don't think you went into the richness and the, and the composition. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
3: absolutely uh, so in terms of composition uh we saw the types of uh, fungi in particular show up that you would expect so the the typical uh species that you might find in a damp building so things like aspergillus and penicillium and lilybia uh were the predominant genre that we found uh starting to show up at 80 percent, and especially at the higher levels at 100 uh so typically at the uh the slightly lower, but still elevated relative humidity levels, we see Wollemia show up predominantly. So maybe around eighty-five percent, um, and Wollemia will continue to increase um, in total numbers of spores up to a hundred percent. But then above that, we also see things like the Aspergillus and the Penicillium uh, showing up uh, hmm. that tend to grow at the higher relative humidity levels.
1: Yeah, so um, it seems like Wollemia, which I don't, I don't think we focus enough on either. Um, that grew at a different range.
3: It did. So it, it continued to grow at higher levels at a hundred percent compared to 85%, but it just, it showed up a little earlier in terms of, uh, relative humidity levels. Um, and okay. the other thing, the other thing that you asked about was also the, uh, overall diversity and richness. And we see a really complicated story um, with uh, diversity. I'm referring specifically to richness, which is the specific number of species that we find. So when we're measuring so many species, we can look at how many different species we actually um, find to be present. And there's a fairly complicated story there, um, both in terms of the health outcomes and uh, where we see uh, richness increase and decrease in a building. Uh, For fungi, it seems to be that if you measure richness in a building that is affected by water damage, um, but if you take a measurement away from the water damage, you see an overall increase in diversity. Um, But if you take a measurement right where the water damage is or in an area where you see that actual fungal growth, you uh, tend to see a decrease in diversity. And that's what we saw here at our elevated relative humidity levels. We were sampling right where the... uh, the water was, and so we saw a decrease in overall diversity with increased uh, relative humidity levels. Um, But I'd like to note that richness is a fairly nonspecific term. So we're looking at just the total number of species present. We don't necessarily know what they are. So there's this complicated picture with richness, and we're still trying to figure out um, exactly what's going on.
1: Interesting. All right. I also... Um, noted when I was reviewing that, that you looked at resuspension and came to the interesting conclusion that our material balance model predicts that at growth due to 100% relative humidity for one week, the resuspension of microbes grown in carpet dust may account for 75% of the fungal and 21% of the bacterial load in the air. Um, your, your main point appears to be that, that we underestimate the role of resuspension of microbial contamination uh, when it comes to carpet, at least in this study. Is that accurate? And is there anything you like that?
3: So we wanted to see if uh, these this additional growth could potentially impact human exposure. And this is under very specific conditions that probably wouldn't normally occur in a building. So uh, hopefully nobody is intentionally leaving their house at 100% relative humidity for a week. Um, I think you might have problems if you did that. But for our chamber, the, it was exactly at these relative humidity conditions for one week. Um, so we wanted to estimate what that potential contribution from the growth was. Um, And our overall finding was that yes, the growth could indeed increase the amount of microbial exposure uh, that you're exposed to. Um, And this was based on a a rough resuspension model, so assuming that this growth occurred um, in carpet and then you walk across the carpet, you're um, resuspending it into the air. Um, So that was our main conclusion that the, the growth could potentially impact human exposure.
1: And it, it sounds like this has led to other research that you're doing now. Is that? Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the one project that we're working on now is to try to make this uh, w- uh, look at this under more realistic building conditions. So uh, under re- under conditions where relative humidity varies throughout the day, um, and then we've also looked at uh, gene expression and microbial function um, in these dust samples. Um, And so we did a a metatranscriptomic study. That's a really long word that basically means we looked at all the different genes that express all the the microbial function that's occurring in these samples and asked, what are they doing? So we know they're growing, we know they're active, and we wanted to know uh, what they're doing.
1: Gotcha. And that's the next paper we want to talk about here is the gene expression of indoor fungal communities under damp building conditions, implications for health but before we do, we wanna we wanna go to our roundup here and uh make a clip. I wanna make sure I give you time to ask any questions you have. But
2: we'll be right I'm back. Still, I'm, I'm still I'm still trying it. to catch up writing the the blog. <laughs> I bet you are
0: the 2018 Healthy Building Summit, October 25th through the 27th at Seven Springs Mountain Resort in the gorgeous Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania. Network and practitioners, prominent researchers, and industry leaders in an intimate and informal setting. This year's theme is I E Q: Remediation and Restoration, Research to Practice. This is the only industry event that performs live research and links researchers and practitioners. Marquee sponsors include Hayward Score, helping people live healthier lives, and Particles Plus. Count on us. All right, we're back. Let's let's get into the roundup. Cliff,
1: uh, before I jump in here, do you have anything you wanted to ask about the first three papers or the, any of the first part of the interview?
2: I do not. All
1: right. Now. We're into paper number four. John has it up here. Gene expression of indoor fungal communities under damp building conditions, implications for human health. All right, so gene expression is kind of a, a new term for us here, but I think you, you mentioned what it was briefly prior to going into this, but maybe you give our listeners just a little more on what, what you mean by gene expression.
3: Sure so we had looked at uh, these carpet samples in the previous study and we knew that there was microbial growth occurring in the carpet samples and so the big question we had left is what are they doing what is the microbial function uh, what does the microbial function actually look like and to do that we wanted to study gene expression so we actually looked at the uh, RNA that uh, these microbes produce. So microbes have uh, DNA um, and then they create RNA when they express genes. And so we measured the RNA to get an idea of what these microbes were actually doing um, in these dust samples under elevated relative humidity conditions.
1: Okay. And then I guess this goes back to the the, uh, the introduction using an omics approach. I don't know if I got that right or not. Is that did I pronounce that right? An omics approach you're talking about here. And then uh, we're talking about a meta transcriptomic study. And you mentioned that uh, before the break, but I would, if you wouldn't mind, I wonder if you could kind of break that down in layman's terms for us
0: here.
3: Sure. Uh, The metatranscriptomic study is basically a a long word that means that we looked at all the different genes that were expressed in these samples. So oftentimes people might do a transcriptomic study, and that's looking at maybe a specific species that you're interested in to look at the transcriptome, basically all the genes that are expressed, the function of that. We looked at the metatranscriptome, which means that we looked at the entire community um, in these samples. So we wanted to know what all the different species were doing together um, in terms of microbial function.
1: And, and this, when this occurs, the, the gene expression, uh, is that when we start to see things um, like the, the secondary metabolism of these organisms start to kick in? Is, am I confusing that?
3: Uh, yeah, so we we had some really surprising findings from this study. Uh, the first surprise, so we for this study specifically, we looked at uh, 50%, 85%, and 100% equilibrium relative humidity. Um, yeah. And the first surprise was that at 50%, uh, we actually saw expression of genes. So we had originally intended that as a control sample. We didn't actually think we could get RNA or see gene expression occurring at 50%. Um, but indeed, we did. Um, and we saw that these might were active, um, but they were really participating in primary metabolic processes. So they were really just hanging on, kind of waiting for some water to come by so that they could grow. So they weren't doing too much, but um, lipid lipid metabolism was complete, carbohydrate metabolism was complete, and they were still uh, having some microbial function. Um, And then when you looked at 85% and 100% equilibrium relative humidity, we saw increases in gene expression, especially at 100% equilibrium relative humidity. Um, And when we we looked at this, we saw that at 85%, the microbes were still participating in primary metabolic processes, so basically just kind of hanging on. you know, trying to remain there, what they're doing. But at 100% equilibrium relative humidity, we saw a lot of secondary metabolic processes. So they started to expand out what they were doing. Um, And they expanded out in pretty diverse ways. In fact, our different samples at 100% equilibrium relative humidity were actually very different even from each other, as well as being different from the 85% and the 50% equilibrium relative humidity. Um, And that's particularly important because a lot of... uh, things that you might be concerned about in the indoor environment, so allergens, um, mycotoxins, things like that, uh, often tend to be in those secondary metabolic uh, pathways. So we actually saw an increase in the number of allergens and uh, mycotoxins produced um, in the samples that were incubated at 100% equilibrium relative humidity levels. So this brought up a up a really interesting uh, question for us so uh, when you measure a spore the question is really is a spore a spore um, or are they different depending on how they've actually grown so you might have a a very different response from a health standpoint uh, for a spore that you're exposed to that's been uh, grown at these higher relative humidity levels
1: interesting interesting john can you pull up that last slide the one that had the little the changed i want I want to ask Karen if she'll explain this one to us because it has to do with this gene expression, right?
3: Yes, Uh, so on this slide here, you can see a map. So this looks uh, very complicated, but this map shows all the different genes that uh, we found were expressed in our samples, and if you look at the top left corner, you can see the water activity levels that we were looking at. Um, So first at the 50% equilibrium relative humidity levels, we just see those primary metabolic processes that are lit up. Um, At 85%, we see a little bit more, but it's still largely those primary processes of what the the cells are doing. Then at 100% equilibrium relative humidity, we see all the secondary metabolic processes um, that you see here that light up. And so we see a lot more gene expression as well as very diverse gene expression. So we see sort of an increase in what we think of as metabolic diversity at these um, higher equilibrium relative humidity levels.
1: Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Um, Let me see. Cliff, anything you wanted to...
2: Uh, The the, the one thing, Joe, I just wanted to pick up uh, and get an answer for that that you had mentioned was omics. Uh, You promised you were going to tell us what omics were. Yes.
3: Yeah. Omics is looking at uh, basically a lot of different factors, a lot of different biological molecules, and looking at how uh, that whole picture relates to things like uh, microbial function or structure of microbial communities, things like that.
0: Okay.
2: Thanks.
1: And – You know, I'm wondering, um, let's go back to that graphic, John. I think that's fascinating. Can you tell us a little more about what what we're looking at? I mean, I know we're looking at the gene expression, but how did you build this model? Is that a computer program, and and then you kind of sliced and diced in the sample results there somehow? How does that work?
3: Sure. So a lot of the bioinformatic analysis here was done by Bridget Haggerty, who's a PhD student at Yale University uh, working with Jordan Petia, And so she did a really fantastic job working with this data. The data is really complicated. So first, it's extremely difficult to actually extract the RNA from the dust itself because of the presence of RNases. Uh, So you have to be very careful, uh, use a very specific technique to get the RNA out. Um, Once you have the RNA out, you uh, sequence it, and then you basically have this very large file, it can be gigabytes of data, that you then need to process from the RNA reads into what's actually going on here. Uh, So she used uh, primarily a program called Trinity to basically take those raw reads and turn it into what you see here, which is a map of genes that are expressed. Um, and if you look more closely at this figure, you can see uh, different pathways. So you can see like carbohydrate metabolism is, is labeled, lipid metabolism is labeled. And you can see that those pathways are complete and they're being expressed um, at all three different equilibrium relative humidity levels that we measured.
1: Uh, so the foundational one, the, the the primaries ones at all three were expressed. But then as you went up in relative humidity, you had more connections essentially between. That's fascinating. Very interesting. Energy metabolism, amino acid metabolism, carbohydrate, lipid. It gets more confusing every time I talk to you researchers, (laughs) although you're helping me understand it here very, very much. Now, let's go back again to the the results of the study. I mean, how how are the results of the study going to affect the study of health effects um, and damp indoor spaces? I know you mentioned that a little briefly a moment ago, but I want you to kind of recap that for the listeners, please.
3: So I think based on this work, we're still trying to answer the question that we started with at the beginning, which is what is the most important thing that we need to measure in the indoor environment to find associations with human health outcomes? Uh, So what we found uh, in this particular study is that we may need to be looking at something different because we see different biological molecules that we know may be associated with health outcomes like allergens and mycotoxins Um, And we see them uh, expressed differently depending on how uh, the microbial communities were grown at different equilibrium relative humidity conditions. So I think uh, basically the the conclusion right now is that looking at moisture in the indoor environment is probably the most important factor. Um, If we can control the moisture, we can uh, likely create a healthier environment. And that's been shown with associations in the literature between dampness in um, the environment as uh, is with health outcomes, so I think the end result right now is we still need to keep looking at the moisture, those visual signs, so mold growth, visible water damage, um, things like that, uh, as well as moldy older and that that seems to be the thing that has the strongest association with health outcomes at the moment. Um, And in the future, as we continue to do these, uh, these projects, we may get a better idea of other specific things that we can quantitatively measure that may be more strongly associated with health outcomes. Um, But I'm, I'm sort of waiting until we find something that has a stronger association than these other uh, more subjective factors um, before we switch over to making those measurements in the field.
1: So I, let me make sure I got you right. It seems at this point that the odor, the, the microbial volatile organic compounds are, are most clearly related to health issues or, or that's where you most commonly find health issues.
3: Yeah, the more the more subjective inspection, so visual visual evidence, so visual mold growth, uh, visual water damage, things like moldy odor uh, have the stronger associations with health outcomes at the moment, and the reason for that may be because of what we're finding here. So we see that these. Uh, microbial communities at these elevated relative humidity conditions uh, produced more allergens so even if you're measuring the same number of spores if they were uh, if they experienced different water activity levels you may be exposed to a different number of allergens um, but I think that in the end uh, I'm a researcher so I'm always going to say more study is needed uh, <laughs> so, and I think that that's uh, that's where we're going with this
1: I think that's fair enough so it, it seems like you know as we've always, Uh, pretty much known that the higher relative humidities, you have more secondary activity and uh, people seem to have more health issues. I also wanted to point out that earlier, um, and it might've been the third study we talked about where we were looking at the different relative humidities. You pointed out there, and I think it's an important um, uh, tip for Those of us doing inspection work, uh, somewhere in the paper talked about slab and slab on grade with carpet right on top of slab on grade. Could you just kind of comment on that for a moment?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to uh, keep in mind the different relative humidity conditions uh, over the entire space of a room. So you may have different relative humidity levels at different points. If you measure the relative humidity in the center of the room, it could be very different um, that towards the edge of the room or in the carpet. Uh, so there have actually been studies that have been shown that the uh, relative humidity in the carpet can be very different uh, than in the center of the room. Or you think about uh, other areas where you might potentially see uh things like condensation happening you might have even if you're not seeing condensation you might have different equilibrium equilibrium relative humidity levels at different points
1: and high enough that you're getting this type type of gene expression and activity going to your last paper that may lead to more allergenicity and uh, toxicity and all the other things we worry about
3: yeah, potentially. So I think we really need to look at the moisture and in the indoor environment and make sure that we're maintaining it at uh, levels that we find acceptable.
1: Karen, I, I really appreciate you, uh, Dr. Dana Miller, joining us today. I, I just want to add, uh, and Cliff, do you have anything you wanted to add? I do not. You've got I workshop you got your work today with the blog. I know that. Um, anyway, before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Is there anything we missed? Anything you'd like to add? Any final thoughts for our listeners?
3: Um, I'd just like to thank again um, all the people that have worked on uh, these various studies with me, so I'd, I'd also like to thank the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation who funded a lot of this work, um, and the various other funding agencies associated with the papers, um, all the co-authors as well as the students in my group uh, that I mentioned, um, as well as the participants of uh, the studies without who this wouldn't be possible. Um, and in the end, I, I think it's uh, really great to be having these conversations and talking about moisture in the indoor environment. Um, I'd love to hear from any industry professionals out there who are interested in what they heard today and, and hear what they they think about it. Um, but in the end, I think we really need to be paying attention to moisture in the indoor environment um, as an important factor when we're concerned about health outcomes in the indoor environment.
1: Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And um, this. Again, I, I look forward to getting you back in the future and following your research as time goes on. Um, I think it's going to be fascinating to, to continue to look at these issues. But uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Karen Miller for joining us from The Ohio State University. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnik. going to have a busy uh, afternoon writing his blog at the controls, John. you got to have faith. Uh, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, Check us out on YouTube or on uh, Podbean. If you just joined the podcast, uh, you can download those and play them in your car. We'll be back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. <laughs>